Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. The Louisville High School football team was on its way to a Friday night game. Troy Kilpatrick was on the team and hopped onto the bus. There, he met eight-year-old Celeste Franzman. Her grandmother was driving the bus to the game, and she tagged along for fun. Celeste's father, Jim, and her mother, Debbie, divorced just after she was born. The Newark Advocate wrote about Celeste and how growing up, she would have her girlfriends over and they'd play with makeup and listen to music. She had a loud, booming voice and a laugh to match. She had fun with her younger sister, Sarah, and every time she saw her grandparents, she would tell them she loved them. Celeste had a heart of gold and always thought of others. After high school, Troy and Celeste's lives would take them in separate directions. He joined the U.S. Air Force, and she moved 15 minutes away to Canton, Ohio, and became a bit of a wild child seeking good times, which dragged her into a world of petty crime, solicitation, and drugs. The local police knew her by name as she racked up charges for drug possession, prostitution, and motor vehicle theft. The Columbus Dispatch reported that her mugshots served as a yearbook of Celeste's street life. Some days seem better than others. In one shot, she's barely able to hold up her head, her eyes unfocused, the bags under them deep and dark. In another picture, she stares at the camera, her long, thick hair thrown over her shoulder, as if she'd fixed it for the photographer. Her life changed for the better for a while when her daughter Jordan was born in 2003. But sadly, when she was only two, she lost her to a lung condition. It hit Celeste hard. Then, in 2009, tragedy struck again when her mother died. Celeste dealt with her grief by running towards drugs to ease her pain. Celeste met Katrina Culberson, who went by the name K.C. when they were both prostitutes. The two smoked crack cocaine together and became friends. Then, eventually, their relationship turned romantic. K.C. encouraged Celeste's drug habit and was the dominant one. She was abusive and beat up Celeste whenever she did something that she didn't like. K.C. used the internet to book jobs for herself, Celeste, and others then used intimidation to take a cut of their pay. She was known to be violent, often beating the women, and they were afraid of her. K.C. was arrested many times for soliciting, burglary, and obstructing official business. Troy later left the Air Force and moved to Canton and worked in construction. There, he reconnected with Celeste and they became friends and hung out together. In the Times Recorder, he described their friendship. Celeste, he said, 
was kind and thoughtful and had the most beautiful dark eyes he'd ever seen. They liked to go hiking and fishing, but she didn't like putting the worm on the hook or taking the fish off. Who can blame her? In April of 2012, Celeste boarded her father's truck without asking, and when she didn't return it, he was forced to call the police to get it back. Then, in July, she was back in the Stark County Jail, serving time for solicitation. In the summer of 2012, Casey and Celeste broke up. Casey was then romantically involved with LaFonz Dixon, a male who dealt drugs and supplied her with crack. In mid-August, Troy was working. It was a long and busy day, and Celeste didn't want him to go hungry. So she borrowed a car, drove to a sub shop, and delivered his favorite sub. Another day, she stopped by his house where he was barbecuing hamburgers in the backyard and listening to music. A song came on, and he asked her to dance. She laughed. He grabbed her hand. Their bodies swayed to the music, slow dancing on the patio. Meanwhile, someone had stolen $350 from Casey, and she thought it was Celeste. Then, LaFonza's drug house on Gilmore Avenue was raided by police, and they were certain that Celeste had been the one to squeal to authorities. The two set out to track her down and make her pay. Celeste heard they were looking for her and laid low. She had no idea that the couple had come up with the idea to beat and kill her. Her father, Jim, had reconnected with Celeste and tried to get to know his adult daughter. She dropped her wall of armor just a bit and confided in him that she was having problems with KC. And late one night, KC went to where Jim was staying and begged on the door looking for Celeste. She offered him $300 to tell him where she was. He asked her why, and she responded by saying that she was going to kill her. Celeste burst into the house of a stranger, Steve Maddock. He yelled at her to get out, and she yelled back at him that people were after her. So he agreed to give her a ride. They hopped into his vehicle, and soon a van was following them. Celeste screamed as she crouched down and hid. Steve could see LaFonz and Casey and two other females. They were yelling, that's her, that's her. The van tried to cut him off, and when that wasn't successful, they bumped his vehicle a few times. The chase continued, so Steve headed to the police department. The van, noticing where he was going, took off, and when he arrived, he left Celeste at the station. A week later, she showed up at her dad's, he looked out to see her behind the wheel of his blue Dodge pickup truck. He demanded that she hand him the keys, but she refused, and in her booming voice, she said she was going to Walmart and would be right back. But he knew that wasn't true. Court records revealed that a couple weeks later, on August 26, in the early a.m., K.C. went to her friends to buy crack cocaine and saw Monica Washington sleeping on the couch. She woke her up and showed her a bag of crack and asked if she wanted to drive around and smoke it. KC had borrowed a Chevy SUV from Ralph, another one of her boyfriends. Monica hopped up into the passenger seat. Then, at an intersection, she spotted Celeste driving her dad's truck 
She had Kenny Holmes with her. Casey and Monica chased Celeste and Kenny into a Walmart parking lot. Casey pulled up alongside them and told Celeste she wasn't going to do anything to her. She just wanted to tell her about a $900 date they could do together. This was enough to convince Celeste to trust Casey, who then got out of her SUV and into the truck with Celeste and instructed Monica to follow them to a restaurant parking lot. When they arrived, Casey told Kenny to get lost. Celeste parked her dad's truck and got into the back of the SUV with Monica. Casey slid behind the wheel. But what Celeste didn't know is that Casey had instructed Monica earlier to activate the child locks on the rear doors. Casey then phoned LaFons and said that she was on her way. Monica began hitting Celeste. When LaFons got in, he and Casey shared a look, and she asked him, You remember what we talked about? And he replied, Yes. It was on. Their plan was about to happen. LaFons punched Celeste in the face a fast three times. When the first punch landed, she screamed. After that, she got quiet. While Casey continued to drive around Canton, LaFons and Monica beat Celeste. At 3.30 a.m., the SUV pulled up to Tammy Charlton's house. She had helped raise Casey and was like a mother to her. Casey asked Tammy to get in the SUV, but when she peered in and spotted Celeste lying on the floor in the back, covered in blood, she refused and told them to leave. She thought the two had had a couple spat, and with a warrant out for her arrest, she didn't contact police and report it. The SUV then headed south on the interstate. The smoke from the crack hung thick in the air. Casey and Monica yelled, This is what happens to snitches. And LaFons told her, This is the day she's going to die. They used a black belt that they'd found in the vehicle and tried to tie Celeste's wrists. But when that didn't work, they used masking tape that they'd also found to bind her hands. They stopped twice for gas. Their second stop was at a Circle K that had video surveillance, and Monica was recorded putting gas into the SUV. LaFawn stuffed napkins into Celeste's mouth to muffle her screams. At some point, Casey climbed into the back, and taking a screwdriver, she hit her several times with the handle. Then she took her feet and placed them against her neck, Blood spurted out of her eye. They stopped the vehicle near a farmhouse, but the lights at the house spooked them and they drove off. They stopped again in a secluded spot in the Tri-Valley Wildlife Recreation Area. They attempted to strangle her. Celeste was too weak to fight back. LaFons put a toe strap around her neck. He pulled on one end, Monica pulled on the other. Celeste turned purple and she was bleeding. She had lost consciousness. LaFons grabbed her hands and arms and Monica grabbed her feet 
and they carried her out of the SUV, off the road and into the bushes, and dropped her body in the tall grass. LaFons ordered Casey to pour gasoline on Celeste. She returned to the vehicle and grabbed the gas can. Celeste was lying on her back with her hands tied together. Casey strode over to her and poured gas all over her body. LaFons handed her a lighter. She flicked it, dropped it, and set her lover and friend on fire. As the flames ignited and lit her body, Celeste was crying and begging for help. Casey put the gas can back in the SUV, and the three of them drove off, leaving Celeste to die as the flames raged hotter, destroying her flesh. They drove back to Canton, and Casey returned the SUV to Ralph and ordered him to clean it. Then Casey and Monica went to another friend's house to shower. Casey then collected their bloody clothes and threw them in a dumpster. Celeste didn't die. Her will to live was so strong. She dragged her burned body, searing in pain, a third of a mile through thick bush and tall grass until she reached the road. The Tribune reported that a man who wished to remain nameless was driving home to pick up his wife and family around 8.30 a.m. before heading to church. He was thinking what a beautiful Sunday morning it was. His truck crested a hill when he thought he spotted a deer. Celeste found the strength to rise up from the pavement. He slowed his truck down and she flung her naked body onto the hood. He saw that she was covered in burns from head to toe and she was screaming, Help me, they're trying to kill me. He called 911. As he opened the driver's door and was halfway out, she flung herself at him, crying out in agony. He caught her in his arms and picked her up. Her hair was gone, her skin was hanging off her body, some of it falling off. He gently laid her down in the grass. She grabbed his hand and wouldn't let go. He reassured her that he wouldn't leave, but he had to just for a second so he could grab a blanket and Gatorade out of his truck. He gently covered her with the blanket and held her head so she could take a sip. Celeste was gasping for air and he noticed the toe strap wrapped around her neck that had burned into her flesh. He loosened it a bit to help her breathe, but he didn't completely remove it because he knew the police were going to need it for evidence. He did his best to comfort her while waiting for help. Court records reported that he asked her, her name, and even with her severe injuries, she willed herself to speak and say Celeste. And then he asked her, who did this to you? And she replied, Katrina Culberson, Fonz Dixon, and Washington. He managed to write Casey's name down on a piece of paper and saved it for police. Celeste told him she knew she was going to be ugly now, and he told her she was beautiful, now and forever. Then the two prayed together. 
When the Adamsville Volunteer Fire Department and EMS arrived, they tried to put her on the stretcher. But when they reached for her, her skin slid off and they couldn't keep their hold on her. Celeste was a fighter. She wasn't ready to die. She picked herself up off the ground and put herself on the stretcher. She was flown by air ambulance to Wexner Medical Center at the Ohio State University in Columbus. Detective Todd Mull was on call that weekend for the Muskingum County Sheriff's Office. When he arrived at the hospital, he noticed the smell and said that if you've ever smelled burnt hair, multiply that by a thousand, and that's what the room smelled like. Almost 80% of her body had been burnt. He was hoping to talk to her, but she was unresponsive. Celeste had spoken her last words. Todd had only ever heard about one, two, and three-degree burns. Now he learned that fourth-degree burns go deep down into the muscles and destroy their tissue, and fifth-degree burns reach down to the bone. Celeste had both. Four hours after she had been found, Jim walked into the Canton police station and reported his truck missing. At that point, he had no idea what had happened to his daughter. He returned home and was sitting on the front porch when two policemen approached him. They told him Celeste had been set on fire and maybe had 48 hours left. Doctors were able to resuscitate Celeste while they waited for family members to arrive. There was nothing more they could do for her, and they knew that she was succumbed to her injuries. Sarah sat by her sister's bedside, talking softly to her, telling her how much she was loved and wouldn't be in pain anymore. On Tuesday afternoon, Celeste took two quick deep breaths and passed away. At 29, she was a daughter, a sister, a friend, a mother, and a homicide victim. Troy was reading the local paper when he read about a Canton woman being assaulted. Then he saw posts on Facebook that the woman had been in her dad's truck, and he got a bad feeling. It wasn't long before they released Celeste's name, and Troy was in shock. Three days after her death, Monica was arrested. The next day, LaFons, and the day after that, KC. All three were charged with one count of aggravated murder with two death specifications, one count of kidnapping and one count of aggravated arson. Initially, Casey and Monica both pled not guilty, but later changed their pleas to guilty to avoid the death sentence and agreed to testify against LaFons. Casey was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole, in addition to 11 years for kidnapping. Monica was sentenced to life in prison with a chance for parole after she serves 25 years. LaFons pled not guilty. He professed his love for Casey, but insisted he hadn't been at the scene of the crime. He went to trial in September 2013, 
Both Casey and Monica took the stand and told what had happened that fateful day, and they both owned up to the part that they played. Monica told the jury that LaFonz was not innocent, that he had been there, and that it was time for him to own up to what he had done. Prosecutor Michael Haddix showed Monica a photo of a black belt and asked her if she recognized it. She threw her head back, closed her eyes, and said yes. Celeste was tied up with that belt. LaFonz was found guilty, but in an 11-to-1 vote, the jury was not in favor of the death penalty. A judge sentenced him to life in prison with no chance of parole. He appealed, but it was denied. Celeste's death had a profound effect on Troy. He went back to school and majored in criminal justice with a goal to work in the court system. And thanks to his posts on social media, the world hasn't forgotten his friend. A white wooden cross was erected at the roadside by the man who found Celeste. On it, he hung the blanket that he had covered her with and in the earth below he planted purple and yellow flowers that dance in the wind. He said the flowers were to prove to Celeste that she was beautiful. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Darren Wint who brutally attacked his former boss and his family. He held them hostage overnight while waiting for the ransom to be paid. Then he viciously murdered all of them. But his DNA was found in the most unlikely place. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or MurderIn20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.